Does that give me more of an aura of authority with the echo? Hello, Christ center, Christ center, center, center. The Lord sees you when you don't think he's looking. This is not the message I'm trying to bring this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you so much that we can be together today. Father, I thank you for giving us to each other. Lord, you're giving us one to another. You gave your own son. You've withheld nothing. And then you called us in to your family to get to be that same kind of a gift. Lord, that we can live and serve and love one another with your love and experience your heart. We can give our lives and experience the same joy that Jesus, he experienced and experiences as he gave his. And Lord, this morning as we, as we read your word and as we meditate on the words of Jesus and on the, and the historical account of what he did while he walked this earth, we trust that your Holy Spirit will move deeply according to what you said. The same Spirit which raised Christ from the dead works mightily in us and completes the good work that you began. Lord, today, let that be the case. Another day with you. Yay. Amen. Well, how many of you guys just love Mark 6? Because we have been camping out in Mark 6, and not even all of Mark 6, just part of it, for a whole month. I'm rather proud of us. I feel like we're going deep. What do you guys think? I'm going to read the passage to you. And he said to them, Jesus speaking, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. And they went away in the, in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. And the people saw them going, and many recognized them, and they ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate, and it's already quite late. Send them away so they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and look. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and he broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Now in this story, Jesus... I want to go back to the beginning here. There we go. In this story, later on in the, in the chapter, and I'm not going to read it to you, Jesus then sends the disciples ahead of him again on a boat, and they're rowing along, and then Jesus comes out walking across the water. And when they see this man walking across the water in the midst of a storm, it's stormy and it's dark, they, they freak out. Sweet. Actually, they may have taken his name in vain. 
They didn't know it was him. That, wouldn't that be kind of funny? Oh, Jesus! And he's like, you weren't saying that properly, were you? At any rate, they thought it was a spirit, and they're freaking out, and it says, Jesus came on the boat and said, well, what are you doing? It's, it's just me. And so he got in, he calmed the storm, and they marveled within themselves. And it says in the scripture, because they did not recognize him, because their hearts were hard, and they didn't understand the fishes and the loaves. Now, that seems like a huge leap to me. There's a ghost walking across the water, and it scares the bejeebers out of them. And the reason why they got scared of Jesus walking across the waters is because their hearts were hard, and they didn't understand about the bread and the fish that had just been multiplied. What's the point? The point is, Jesus is always showing us something new. He's always demonstrating something to us that's going to help us. And when he does something supernatural, when he does something in your midst, not only does it have the power of what it is, they actually multiplied the bread and the fishes, but it also has within it another step into how Jesus works, into how he flows. And he expects each of us to learn from that experience and to allow ourselves to understand what he's like and what he does. And each experience that we have with the supernatural nature of this king and his kingdom, he requires us to, to come and say, Lord, that was amazing. What do you want me to remember about this? What do you want me to take away from this? And in fact, if we don't take the time to, to stop and say, Lord, that was amazing. That was amazing. Thank you. If that's possible, what else is possible? I mean, if you can, if you can multiply five loaves of bread, and in Jesus' frame of mind, as, we just, as I just showed you from speaking of this scripture, that means that it shouldn't surprise you when he decides to walk on water. Their first thought should have been, dude, there's somebody walking on water. That could only be one man. That's got to be Jesus. That, you know that ain't Zeus, and you know it ain't Joe, you know, or Ted. No, that's got to be Jesus. You know how I know? Why? Because he multiplied bread. He just fed 5,000 people. It's got to be Jesus. But it says their hearts were hard, and so they didn't comprehend the bread and the fish. Now, I want to set up what I'm going to share with you with that beginning point, because I believe right now that what the Lord wants to do this morning and what he wants to continue to do with us is keep us in a place of being disciples. You see, a disciple is a learner. And have you guys ever tried to teach somebody, teach something to somebody who doesn't want to learn? Have you ever done that? Yeah. And everybody who has kids is like, ding, 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 ding. Everybody who has a little sister is like, ding, 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 or a little brother. Um, it is you know, that's where those kind of lessons, like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. That, those kind of parables come from that kind of a situation, right? You have to be teachable in order to learn, don't you? You have to be teachable. Would you say that word for me, teachable? Okay, now here's the interesting thing about being teachable. It requires humility. It requires curiosity. And I actually think those two things go together, by the way. 
I don't think you can be curious and proud at the same time. I think when you're proud, you just get cynical. It's because they're idiots. Remember in the 1800s, there were some articles that were printed up about how everything that will ever be invented has been. (laughs) Now, I think that guy probably made it to heaven, but he's got to hate it every time we mention that. (laughs) You see, humility causes us to be inquisitive. It causes us to be curious. It allows there to be room for mystery and intrigue and joy. It, it causes you, you know, there, was a, there was a beautiful daughter of this house that got saved, and when she first got saved, she was just, she's still filled with love and curiosity, but it's just awesome when you're watching a newborn come into the kingdom, and they're just like, ah, 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 and, and you want to be around them, because they're like, I love you, like, do you love Jesus? Yeah, I love Jesus. We both love Jesus. He's our daddy. And you're just going, oh, yes, I need to remember this. Come here, just give me a hug. I'll see if it can rub back off on me. And she was watching, and the trees actually were blooming. And there were white, you guys know when the trees bloom around here, and there's that white, like, you know, tree feathers. The white stuff that comes out when they bloom. What is that stuff called? Not the pollen, but the white stuff. Cotton. From the cottonwoods, probably. I don't know. It doesn't matter. In my mind, and in her mind, they were angel feathers. And she said, it looks like angel feathers. Look, even this city is filled with angel feathers. You know what I think? I think if my heart's hard, then I look at that and think, you silly little girl. Angel feathers. But I think when I soften my heart and I remember that he's an amazing God, the kind that creates universes that he fits into the span of his hand, then I think that When the trees are blooming, it reminds me of angel feathers. You see, when we humble ourselves, we get curious again. And we're willing to go back and take a look at something and say, if he could do this, well, then maybe he could do this. If he could heal my broken heart over this, then I bet you he could heal my broken body here, or my hope there, or my dreams here. And so, this morning my desire is this. Could you just close your eyes for just a minute? Just close your eyes. Just close your eyes and and let's just take a minute. And here's what I want us to think about. And then, and then I want you to just, we're going to actually just take a moment and I want you to silently talk to the Lord about this thing, but keep your eyes closed. And here's what it is. Lord, would you soften my heart so that I won't miss the miracles? And will you soften my heart so that I won't miss the opportunities and the beauty and the wisdom and the revelation that's contained in each miracle. And I'll be able to see your heart. I'll be able to see your hand. reawaken my imagination so that I will look for you walking on water rather than assume that Satan is attacking me.
rather than assume that a spirit is coming and taking away, but that I would begin to go, Jesus, if you made these miracles happen, what more are you doing? Lord, will you soften my heart? And I want you to just, I'm just gonna be silent for a minute and I want each of us to just let the Holy Spirit come in just tangibly, just right now, and begin to soften our hearts. And the people saw them going, and many recognized them, and they ran there together on foot from all the cities, and they got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate, and it's already quite late. Send them away so they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, you notice that the disciples are on the right track, okay? They are, they're learning to be like Jesus. And you know what we are? We're disciples of Jesus. He is our rabbi. He is our teacher. And we just said, Lord, soften my heart so that I can learn. I want to be a lifelong learner to be like you, Jesus. You guys know that, that he said, as I am, so are you. And greater things will you do because I go to my Father. So what does that mean? It means every time that we read this word, each day when we read this word, what we're looking at is we're looking at how Jesus operated. Well, the disciples are with him, and they're watching how Jesus operates. And they're learning to, to think like him and to act like him and to, to understand, where are you going with this, Jesus? What are you doing? Because when you had a rabbi, you became a learner, and you learned everything that they did. If they ate a certain way, you ate a certain way. They went to sleep somewhere, you went to sleep somewhere. This is how they remember when they came? Jesus, teach us how to pray. Why did they ask? Because you do what your rabbi does. And Jesus taught them, and so he's teaching them. And I want us to get this, that these disciples are learning to be like Jesus. They did a good job here because they watched Jesus. Jesus came out. He had compassion on these people, that they were sheep without a shepherd. He was moved with compassion. He looked at their deep spiritual need. He was moved with compassion, and he began to teach them. And the disciples are watching what Jesus is doing, and, and they're doing a good job because they go, man, we're moved with compassion. There's 5,000 people out here, and we are out in the sticks we need to send them somewhere to get food because these guys are going to get hungry. The disciples were on the right track. They were looking at the felt needs of these sheep without a shepherd. And so they did what I think any of us would do. They came up to Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, you should fix this. They said, Jesus, this place is desolate and it's already quite late. And so, Lord, send them away so they can go get something to eat. Now, I don't think Jesus was upset with the disciples for, for, for noticing. In fact, I think he was actually quite proud of them. I think they'd caught a glimpse of his heart. Do you care about the felt needs of your neighbors? And they're going, we do. Jesus cared about these people. We care about them. We should send them away to go take care of themselves. And so Jesus says to them, I want you guys to feed them, right? 
He says to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? That's about eight months' wages. So Jesus, should we, uh, should we go ahead and... Now, pro, uh, contrary to a lot of political statements during, uh, during uh, election cycles, Jesus was not homeless and he was not poor. He had a well-funded ministry. He said he has no place to lay his head, but he was talking about, I'm going to walk around this earth, I'm going to die on a cross, and then I'm going to ascend. Okay, but he wasn't saying, I'm poor and I'm homeless. He had a well-funded ministry. How do we know? Because Judas used to steal out of the money bag. So there was money to steal, and they had a bag with money in it. Okay, so these guys asked the question, do you want us to take eight months' wages and go buy bread? Do you want me to call up the church treasurer and let him know that I noticed a problem and see if we have a ministry for that? I don't think this is unreasonable. They did a good job. Jesus asked them to do something, and they immediately assessed, what's it going to cost? What's it going to take to handle this problem? This is not bad. This is not a negative thing. This is just simply them looking at this and going, well, that's going to be like eight months' wages, Jesus, if you want us to feed these guys. And I think, I mean, I'm, I'm making some assumptions here, but I think it's reasonable to think that their first question was, do you want us to take it out of the ministry fund? And Jesus says to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and look. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass, and they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. So Jesus says... First of all, I want you to feed them. We all know this part of the story. They assess what it's actually going to take. And he says, okay, but I have a different idea than what you're thinking. I've got a different plan. I've got a different program than what first came into your mind. What I would like to know is not how much is in the treasury right now. I'm asking you how much is in your hand right now. Go and look. And so they go and they look. And they come back and they report. We've got five loaves, a couple of fishes. In uh, the New King James Version, and this is the NASB, but in the New, Kames, New King James Version, uh, they say that he had the disciples set everyone down in 50s and 100s. So Jesus then gives them a directive. Okay, how many loaves do you have? Five and two fishes? Okay, good. Have everybody sit down in 50s and in 100s because we're all going to eat. How many of you know that Jesus gives us directives without giving us all the pieces yet. Yeah. This, okay, Discipleship 101, guys. We are lifelong learners, and I'm telling you, he has not changed at all. He still will go, do you see the need? I do see the need, Lord. In fact, I noticed that, and he goes, yeah, and I'm proud of you. Good job. I'm glad you're looking out for your neighbors. I'm glad you noticed the need. I want you to take care of it. Okay, Lord, um, let me pray. He's like, I already heard you praying. We're talking right now. That's praying. Okay, um, let me call up a ministry that I know has money in their treasury. He goes, nope. What do you have in your hand? Lord, let me pass a bill so that rich people will be taxed at a higher bracket so then they can take care of the people who have less than me. Nope. What do you have in your hand? Bring that to me. And by the way, now you go and sit everybody down and give them the impression that they're going to eat soon. What are you going to do, Lord? Did you set them down yet? No. 
I'll let you know when you get back. You see, God calls us to himself, and then he asks us to do what he's doing. Something we have to recognize. The kingdom of which we're a part of is countercultural in every area where the culture where we live doesn't agree with his kingdom. Why did I say it that way? Because we're not countercultural just to be countercultural. There are certain parts of our culture right now that are just beautiful, just extraordinary. We have a high value for work. Did you know that it says in the Bible, he who does not work shall not eat? Man, it's so beautiful that we live in a nation that says work is noble. And you know where that came from? God. He gave us a job in the Garden of Eden before the curse. Remember? It's in the Garden of Eden. Care for the garden and cultivate it. It wasn't after the curse. There, you've sinned. Now you have to work. No, work is noble. Work is beautiful. Work is glorious. And you know what? We live in a nation that says that it is. And that's beautiful. So we don't need to be countercultural. I got to move this throne. We don't need to be countercultural in order to prove a point there. No, we just line up with the heart of heaven. Does this make sense? But in the areas where our culture does not line up with the kingdom of which we are a part, we have a symptom of then being countercultural because we're demonstrating the preeminent culture of heaven. The preeminent culture of heaven looks like Jesus. So to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, I must act in accordance with the heart and actions and commands of Jesus Christ. That is what it is to be a disciple. You see, Jesus said something interesting. He didn't say, come and follow me and I shall make you happy. Or I shall make you happy that you may come and follow me. He said, these are my commands. Happy are you if you do them. You see, he's called us to actually live a life that looks like his. And the symptom of doing the commands of Jesus Christ is that we're happy. But his immediate desire, his immediate way of doing things, his strategy, doesn't begin with our happiness. Now, why am I bringing up culture? Well, this is key because we have to recognize where we live, because where we live and how people talk and what we see affects us. It affects the way that we take the gospel and make it work. It, it, we, we, it makes us want to take the gospel and the kingdom and make it work in the context of our, our norm, our culture. Does that make sense to you guys? But Jesus didn't say that. He said, here's what you need to do. You need to come and become a lifelong learner, a disciple, my disciple. I want you to live like I live. And in the points where the culture, the mainstream, is going a certain way, if the kingdom's calling you to go across it, in that area, you're going to be countercultural. Not to prove a point, simply because you're a follower of Jesus. If he zigs, you zig. If the rest of the world's zagging, wave. Now, here's the area where things come to, to a head for us, and, and the point that I'm making right now as I continue on with this talk. Our culture 
has an extraordinary emphasis on independence. The kingdom only talks about interdependence and total dependence on the king. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Now, that's a, that's a pre-born-again heart. But he's saying you literally have to die to your deceitful heart or you will not be born again and, and, and stop being deceived by that heart. He calls us to a complete and total surrender to his lordship and his direction in our lives. There, is, there are no prisoners with him. He kills you completely. Now, that sounds really, really harsh if you weren't actually your own worst enemy. He loves you so much that he kills your worst enemy. That's why we must be born again. You guys should be really happy about this. Your worst enemy has been killed. Is that good? That's good. So when you're born again, you have laid down your right to be the Lord of your life. Why is this important? Well, the reason why I am coming in and just lasering in on this pesky little problem of my own lordship is that we live in a culture that absolutely glorifies everyone's own independence. In the Bible, in one place it says, and everyone did what seemed right in his own eyes. I'm pretty sure, wasn't that like the headline on the Oregonian today? I mean, is that not current events? I was watching a, a show about this guy who flies. You've seen flight suits? And uh, just amazing. I mean, I'm going to wait. I've flown a few times, and I have a lot to work on with the landing. The landing is what's gotten me the, the couple of times that I've flown. And that was a joke. Uh, some terrible falls in my life. These flight suits, you jump off of a mountain, like base jumping, but then you open up your flight suit, and you can fly. And, I mean, you're falling, but you're flying. You're, you're falling forward at 140 miles an hour. And this dude who's falling forward at 140 miles an hour is hitting balloons that they've hung up off the ground. And so they hit these balloons just to kind of get a picture of how accurate they can get and how close they can get to the ground without hitting it. Well, he miscalculated and he hit the mountain. And he splits his... I, I, the dude lived. That's the part that's extraordinary. He hits this mountain. He ends up pulling his chute. He lives. He takes the next six months to get himself back together. And then he goes right back to South Africa and he jumps off the mountain again. Um, that's not even the point. Um, the point is he goes back to that park where he almost died and they won't let him jump off the mountain. And the parks department is going, look, you, we're not going to let you jump off this mountain again. And he's like, come on, I want to jump off the mountain. They go, no, you, we're not going to let you do it. He's like, well, people hike on the mountain all the time. 1,700 people have died hiking on, it's called Table Mountain in South Africa. They've died hiking. 1,700 people have died just hiking. And he's like, no one's ever died from flying off the mountain, you know. And, and they're like, well, hardly everybody, and he flies off the mountain. I mean, what are you saying? Your point is, you know, four guys have done this, and nobody died yet, and 1,700 people have hiked over the last however many years. And so he's coming up with this big argument. What's my point? 
My point is, they tell him, you can't jump off this mountain. And they're interviewing him. This guy's in his mid-30s. The, the whole documentary's about him. You can watch him on Netflix. It's, it's pretty amusing. But here's, but here's this guy. And they say, no, we're not going to let you do it. I mean, last time you did it, you almost killed yourself. So the answer's no, we're not going to let you do it. And he's like, man. And, and this, is the, this is the monologue, you know, as they're doing the documentary. So anyway, what did you think about that? It just makes me really mad when somebody tells me that I can't do something that I want to do. Like, this is riveting stuff right here. Oh, my. Wow. Could you? I rewound. Like, that was moving. I hate it that anyone else could feel like, just because they don't want me to do it, that I'm not allowed to do it. And their reasoning was like, dude, you're going 140 miles an hour and touching down near ground, and you hit a rock. What happens if you hit a kid? You're flying 140 miles an hour in your little suit, and you hit somebody, you're going to kill them. Well, but hikers die all the time. You can't do it. We're not doing it. And he's like, I hate the parks department. Those guys, it's unbelievable dealing with them. I asked them if I could do what I wanted to do, and they're not going to let me. And so anyway, he ends up having to jump off of a different mountain. And I'm just thinking, this is so ridiculous. This guy feels so righteous, and his premise is, I want to do it this way, and these people who are in charge of this piece of land aren't going to let me. And that makes me mad. Can you feel my pain? Someone has told me that I can't do what I want to do in the way that I want to do it. How dare they? And the irony of it was, like, this dude can't even see himself right now. I should be allowed to do whatever I want whenever I want because I was born on earth? I mean, is that it? Is this the entire philosophy? Well, for him it was. But I think that it speaks to a greater reality in which we live is that someone who, though, is doing these extraordinary things, and I actually think it's amazing. I think that, you know, if you can do it, that's amazing. Go for it. I mean, it's, that's, wow. That's awesome. I'm not against it. I am against the premise that if others take a look at it and assess it, and it's something that's within their area of responsibility, and they tell you, we don't feel like this is reasonable for the area that we have to take care of, that you feel indignant that how dare they tell you what you can do, regardless of how it affects anyone else, and that he can't even see himself. It's easy to see in this guy's situation, but I wonder how many of us see it in our own situation. We may not be jumping off of Table Rock and flying at 140 miles an hour, but how many times have we become so indignant because some other human being dared to not do it our way or to not let us do what we want to do when we want to do it? And we may think that we only get that way when other human beings do it, but the truth is, I tell you, you only do to other human beings what you're doing currently to God. And how many of us, when we really boil it down, are telling Jesus Christ, I don't want to do it that way. That's, that's not what I wanted to do. That's, that's not what I thought of when I thought of following you. I had this other plan. And so I'm going to take the last part of this scripture, and I want to kind of bring this all together. So Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven... He blessed the food and he broke the loaves 
And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate loaves. Now, we just asked the Lord to soften our hearts. And I'm believing that God is going to do something deep for each of us where we can leave having already begun to move our point of destination back into lining up with the king and his kingdom, into being a follower and a lifelong learner, a disciple of Jesus Christ in the areas where we may have been stuck or we've been off from the right destination. And there's three things I want to look at. The first thing is Jesus asked them for what was in their hand. Now, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take it in a little bit different direction, but most of us, when we're asked what's in our hand, what we have in our hand is we have our dreams. What we have in our hand is we have, quote, our ministry. You see, every one of us is called into full-time ministry, and every one of us is engaged in it. You're here today because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not here standing above anyone. I'm here standing with my family, and we are standing before Jesus Christ. And in this moment, because we're followers of Christ, we come together and we hear the word again so that we can calibrate ourselves back to the kingdom of heaven. And why must we do that? Because we do forget, because we do get jostled around, because there's turbulence in this flight. And we need to come back and we need to recalibrate, just like Jesus did. Come get in the boat, let's recalibrate. We're in the boat recalibrating. So every one of you is already a follower of Christ. You already have these dreams and these ideas and these, these imaginations and these gifts that you said, Lord, this is how I want to serve you. And you've seen a need in this earth, and you said, I want to meet that need. And God goes, good job. What's it going to cost? And you said, it's going to cost 200 denarii, or it's going to cost six years, or it's going to cost 12 years, or it's going to cost whatever it's going to cost. And he goes, great job. You've assessed it. Because it does say in the Bible, don't come follow me without counting the cost. And how much is the cost? Everything. The cost is everything, right? If you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. Whoa, Jesus, take it easy, you know? Take it easy. He's like, no, I'm serious. It's all or nothing. You either give me everything you have and you have access to everything I have or keep what you have. That's the deal. Are you in or you out? Well, we've all said we're in. But then along the way, as we've seen these different things, we've begun to dream, and that's good. And we've begun to develop, and that's good. And educate, and that's good. And we've created these beautiful ministries and these trajectories for our lives of how we're going to meet the felt needs in this earth. But then something happens. Jesus says, what do you have in your hand? And I say, my music ministry, my lame pregnancy support center ministry, my prayer servant ministry, my prophetic ministry, my art ministry, my homeless ministry, my ushering ministry, my meeting with guys in the morning ministry, my worship team ministry, my whatever ministry. And he says, awesome, give it to me. And we go, whoa, whoa, hold up, what? Yes, give it to me, bring it here. No, I've been working on this for a long time. It's for you. I know. Give it to me. No, 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 no. No, no. It's, it's, not, it's not yours. It's for you. 
give it to me? <laughs> and so we give it to him. And what does he do? He blesses it. I bless this ministry. And we're like, oh, thank God. Whew. Okay, because I know, like, you're the Lord and stuff. I just hate it when you lead. <laughs> you are so unpredictable. You ask me to do things that I would have never thought of. You make me crazy. Ah, oh, thank you. And then he goes, and you go, <laughs> do you realize how much of my time I put into that, Jesus? Don't you understand the dreams that I dreamt? I went to YWAM, and somebody gave me a prophetic word about that. And now I'm doing it, and you broke it. Give it back. <laughs> Heal it. You're the healer. Heal my ministry. Heal it and give it back to me the way that I think and I thought it and I dreamed it and I, and I did it and I told other people about it and I wrote a vision statement about it and other people gave me prophetic words about it and now I finally have it and now you broke it. And not only did you break it, but you let, you know, Jim over here, who I barely even like, you gave it to him and he broke it. And I hate him, but I forgive him and I'm not offended, but we're never working together again. But our relationship is fine because we're Christians and I forgive him. I just will never trust him or talk to him or be around him. And I'm leaving this church. But I'm totally walking in forgiveness. Now give it back. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Here's the deal. Jesus is always breaking your stuff. And the reason why is because your dream has to be in submission to his dream. And when you give it to him, he never gives you back the same thing. I'm telling you, he's going to break it. But then he multiplies it. And then he gives it to you, and he gives it to you, and he gives it to you, and he gives it to your neighbor, and he gives it to your other neighbor, and your other neighbor, and your other neighbor. And what happens? Your heart becomes full because you feed 5,000 people now instead of just you and your wife and your kids and that one other person. But you have to give it to them. And you don't get to choose what color it is. And you probably don't get to choose who else gets to be on the team. And you don't get to choose which group of 50 or 100 that you're going to serve and you don't get to choose hardly anything because you got to make one beautiful choice and it was the right one. You chose Jesus. How many of us need to just give it to him? How many of us need to forgive the person who we think broke it. They broke it. And we need to realize, actually, it wasn't them. It was in their hands. But Jesus broke it because he wanted to multiply it. And you're like, no, they took my appointment. That was my ministry. That was my job. I had a plan. I had a strategy. I had a vision. And now, yeah, 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 we're helping women not to abort their babies. But I was going to be the director of it. And that sounds so petty, because it is. Yes, fine, people are getting saved, but I was supposed to be in full-time ministry. 
meaning I was supposed to get my paycheck from a church. (laughs) You're all in full-time ministry. We are all in full-time ministry. But I'm telling you, it's not always in the color and the flavor and the time frame and the team that you would have picked. And that's just for one reason. You're not Jesus. Now, here's the beauty. It's way, 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 way more fun. In fact, Jesus says this. Happy are you if you obey my commands. And greater love has no man than this, that he lays his life down for his dream. That's not what it says. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays his life down for his vision. Strategy, color choice, team, his brother, his friends. You see, Jesus didn't die for you to achieve an 80-year hobby on earth or maybe a 90-year hobby on earth. His dreams and visions for us go much longer than that. So we can show up and give him whatever's in our hand and let him bless it and let him break it and then let him multiply it. And you will find a happiness that is only available if we will do that. Does that make sense? And I believe that today, I believe that today, the Spirit of God is moving inside of us and he's bringing up some of those areas where we've been mad at God and man because we're pretty sure that other people, most of them Christians, have screwed up our appointments, our teams, the way it was supposed to work, how the money was supposed to flow, who was going to be on the team, where people worked, whatever. But Jesus never promised that. And he was the one that broke it because he wants to multiply it. I'm going to end with a three-minute story. And I do want to ask that the prayer, prayer servant team would come up. Anybody who needs healing, anybody who needs encouragement, anybody who needs to meet Jesus for the first time, or maybe you want to come and just repent to someone like, dude, this is what I've been upset about and I just want to let another human being know. Then you come up at the end of this. But I know of a wonderful couple served the Lord for decades, literally decades, in an extraordinary ministry. And, and as life is life, miscommunication started to happen in this ministry and, 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 and just, you know, ships passing in the night and things began to grow. And it got to the point where, unfortunately, the, the team that they had been a part of for decades and they had to part ways. And they were just devastated because they had been integral in building this ministry and growing it into an extraordinary, and it's still an extraordinary ministry. And they had been a part of that growth and a part of that life and a part of that establishing of the heartbeat and the DNA and the family and the, the glory of it. And it's just, it's still an amazing ministry. But as, as, as does happen, things changed and they lost their appointment and they were no longer a part of that ministry. But they held on and they refused to become offended. They refused to become bitter. Was it easy? No, it wasn't easy. It was very hard. It was heartbreaking. 
because it was their own family and people that they've loved and served with. And so as they work through this, they're working through this, they're working through this, and, and their ministry has been broken. It literally broken, and it's a rending, breaking process. And so they just begin to seek the Lord. Lord, then what? I mean, we thought we would retire here. We thought this is where we would be forever, and it's been beautiful, and yet now it's broken. And Jesus said, here's what I want you to do. And he blessed it, and he took it, and he broke it, but then he began to give it back to them. And because of them, because of their heart, and because of their, 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 their commitment to work through the process, because this was a process. It wasn't like, oh, sunshine, yay, decades gone. No problem, we forgive you, moving on. No, this was a painful process. But they were able to forgive. And they're able to walk without bitterness, without unforgiveness, without cynicism. And as they did, God began to multiply then the ministry and give them the desires of their heart, something they'd had in their heart from the very beginning. And he began to breathe on that. And out of that was built streams of mercy. And now we have 30 orphanages that are fully funded, caring for hundreds of orphans, many of which didn't exist, several of which were just not funded. And now there are little girls and boys being taken out of human trafficking, being raised unto the king, being discipled and established in the kingdom. God multiplied their ministry. And they were not able to do that while still doing what they used to do. That's just one example the truth is, every one of us is walking through and will walk through something similar. The question is, will you give him what's in your hand? Let's stand. My Father in heaven, I come before you and I ask simply this. Will you give us the grace Will you give us the humility? Will you give us the strength that we would give to you our whole lives? That we would truly humble ourselves and ask you, how would you like us to live? What is in my hand? And what do you want me to give to you? Amen.